Hello, and welcome to a cursed episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today, we're reviewing the first movie in our sci-fi trilogy with 1985's Brazil. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Amazon River, Scary Terry, Practical Magic, Icarus, and the hero we need, not the hero we deserved. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Hey man, I uh, wanted to catch you before you head out this weekend. Uh, you got anything going on tomorrow morning? Hey, funny you asked. Uh, the autocross is in town. I thought we could use our sponsor passes and, and go down and check it out. What do you think? Um, that sounds fun, but I could actually use your help on catching up with some invoices and purchase orders. Bloody paperwork, eh? I'm. We are running a business, so I, I suppose one has to expect a certain amount. Why? I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out. Hey, look, we just spent 13 grand in four months filming a commercial. Pretty damn exciting, if you ask me. Let me just show you how to fill out these forms, and, and we can knock it all out in an afternoon. Fine, fine. Let me let, let me see the paper. Uh, okay, so just fill out these top three lines. It, it seems simple enough. Well, yeah, but you need to use the value in box 7D and use that to calculate 27B6. And then if you flip to the next page, that's our 1875 easy. We got to fill out one of those for each shipment of parts, except for tires, though. For that, you have to use this form here. Oh, for fuck's sake, dude. Enough of this bureaucratic bullshit. Can't we just, like, hire someone to do this for us? And, uh, by the way, what movie are we doing this week? <sighs> Ooh, sorry, Miyagi. Uh, bureaucratic bullshit is, is kind of our business this week uh, as we review Brazil. Sam Lowry relishes his average life at a dead-end job in a bureaucratic police state he resides in. That is until the woman from his dream shows up in real life. Now the fantasy that plays out when he's asleep is beginning to seep into the real world, sending him down a path that will surely get him noticed in the sea of gray monotony. Will Sam rise to the occasion and find true love, or find himself bound and gagged by the red tape he once found comfort in? Alrighty, Travis, before we go ahead and start our five-point inspection, I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 1985's Rezi. Um... Well, I think this open is going to consist of two parts. The, the kind of behind the scenes of this episode, this, you know, if you're a loyal listener and you're always looking to see on the same release schedule, you'll you'll find that we, we were delayed by a week on this one. Uh, and we can definitely get into some of the details as to why, because it's been an eventful couple of days. But um, the movie itself, I, I want to start by talking about Terry Gilliam, uh, the director. <clears throat> Fun little challenge for you, Brett, and, and it's 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 objective challenge, but I was having a hard time thinking of too many other directors who visually, if you just show me a couple seconds of their movies, I can instantly pick out um, that it's them behind the camera. Uh, the only one that competes with Terry Gilliam to me is uh, maybe Wes Anderson, maybe Spike Jones, but uh, Tim Burton. Not I'd say yeah, Tim Burton's okay. in, that, in that field too. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying the best directors because... Mm -hmm. Believe me, I, I don't like a lot of Tim Burton stuff, but just visually, 
this movie, I hadn't seen it before. I don't know about you, but it was very much a Terry Gilliam movie from Jump. Mm-hmm. I can't always say that's a good thing. Um, maybe we can get into the details of how we felt it worked out here, but distinct, if nothing else. Yeah, it's almost to the point where... So- this is a movie that had been on my list to watch for a long time. I'm, I'm a huge sci-fi person, and this is always one of those movies like somehow Brazil winds up coming up pretty frequently, and it's one of those I had never seen. I had read synopsis of it, and more so than that, I've seen a ton of screenshots and stills from this movie and wasn't sure what to expect. And I guess my biggest thing going into this movie is I don't feel like the two or three images that typically get thrown around when people describe Gus Brazil really do this movie justice because I feel like they're they're way further out in left field in this movie actually and I'm not saying this movie is I mean it's got some crazy dream sequences and stuff like that but like when I saw those the stills and one of them is um you know Sam in like the helmet that's at the end of the movie like when he's in the the doctor's chair the other is his mother when she's being operated on and her face is being stretched out. And I think like a third one I usually see is like the samurai. And like when I saw those images, I was just expecting honestly something crazier than than what I saw in this movie. Um, you know, not to try and tip the hand. I, I did enjoy the movie. It just there was a certain level I was expecting it to be even, I guess, even more outlandish and absurd than what it actually was. As opposed to some of the, a lot of like the crazy stuff is almost reserved to dream sequences or kind of, uh, yeah, like, like these these weird situations. Um, that's kind and, of and high, even some of like yeah. camera tricks. I recall yeah. like seeing a screenshot of what looks to be a giant man overlooking like a power plant, mm-hmm. but it's just a funny in camera trick. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that because this was not as visionary uh as i expected i expected something more akin to blade runner um mm-hmm. and i quickly realized that was not the movie i was going to get yeah it's almost to, if you're going to go with something more modern it's almost like if you only saw big like stills from big fish when it's him telling the stories and you're expecting the movie to just be this like that's the the movie is those stories as opposed to like those are actually segments of the movie you know, the father's kind of outlandish stories. And like, that's the way I felt about Brazil. I'm like, oh, this movie isn't, isn't, and again, it's not a bad thing. It's just when you go in kind of with that, you know, preconceived notion as to what this movie's going to be, I was definitely expecting something way further out in left field than what this movie actually was. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with uh, that. And uh, interestingly enough, again, the behind the scenes, I'm the, the three, uh, five-point inspections that you gave beyond Amazon River and Scary Terry. I literally found those out as you spoke them uh, because much like a Terry Gilliam production, this this production has been troubled, Brett. Um, <laughs> and I, I plan to cover that in Amazon River, um, but we can start out at any five-point you would like. Um, okay, so let's spread it out a little bit because I like I like putting the the listeners on the edge of their seat because we, we keep referencing all the, the weird stuff that has plagued the production you know, it's funny enough. I mean, it's almost like the you know the man who killed Don Quixote, which was another <laughs> Terry Gilliam. I mean, is is he just cursed himself? I have no idea here. Um, but uh, I let's start with Practical Magic because I think we touched a little bit about it when you were talking about just kind of visionary and style. Um, what I did appreciate is I I think it's just because of the era that this movie was created, uh, with it being 1985. Is, 
a lot of it was practical effects you know a lot of like puppets and stuff like that were used for some of the monsters and stuff like that or even the stretching of of the mother's face and i really i still appreciate i still appreciate practical effects like that because i think things still wind up living up like watching it years past i think a great example of that is like jurassic park like can you imagine if if all of if the t-rex was completely cgi like some of the stuff that stands out the best in jurassic park is is the t-rex because they actually used a giant animatronic t-rex for a lot of those scenes to where it doesn't wind up feeling as fake and dated um and that's just a large portion of this movie i just you know the dream sequences still wind up holding up and they don't feel like you're watching some weird it's not it's beyond claymation where it's like this weird thing like oh this is clearly too old and it's before cgi was really starting to become prevalent where nothing aged right so i just i really enjoyed a lot of the practical effects that were used especially like i said in those dream sequences and like the was it the doll-faced like uh monsters i mean it, it started feeling a little jim henson to me but again that's not a that's not an insult it's just looking at that it's something that i admire yeah and you want to talk about you know stuff that might not have aged well had this movie been made maybe 10 years later even when you know the i don't know exactly what you call them the the authoritarian uh branch of the government who mm-hmm. break into people's homes by cutting a giant hole in their ceiling and dropping in uh, it's it's ridiculous and it's supposed to be because everything in this movie is is dialed up to be even more absurd. But it's it's also you can tell that physically they're cutting some hole in drywall and, and blowing out that hole. Um, so, yeah, if you had done early CGI with that, it would take you out of the movie. But here I'm able to just be like, wow, what a terrible dystopian future, because that hole is literally being carved by practical, practical magic, as you said. Mm hmm. Uh. Before we get to, because we're talking about practical effects, and again, a movie that was almost made exactly 10 years later that I feel like is the the <laughs> the comic uh, bastard son of this movie, um, Super Mario Brothers. Do you think this movie is the reason that Bob Hoskins was, was cast as Mario? Because <laughs> when I saw him, all I could think was like, holy shit, this movie, uh, Super Mario Brothers came out in 1993, so again, it almost a, a full decade before this, but I feel like they could have reused a lot of the set pieces and even, again, some of the puppets and animatronics. I'm like, Super Mario Brothers was basically somebody watched Brazil and was like, hey, how can we put a Nintendo property into this movie? <laughs> yeah, as soon as Bob Hoskins showed up in like the little red cap, mm. I was like, oh, little? Jesus. What the fuck you mean, little? Well, well that, the, the bill on that thing was six times the length of normal hat. As it stood on top, sat on top of his head, it looked small. But yes, as he turns and we get a side profile, yeah, I would be knocking stuff all, all over the place day in and day out if that was my work attire. Uh,. But yeah, I, just, I had to bring up, I didn't have a, a logical place to do it. So as we're talking about practical magic and again, some of the, the characters here, I can easily see this influencing the Super Mario Brothers movie almost 10 years later. Uh, yeah, I had to bring up Bob Hoskins and I'm like, oh, like, especially with him red and he's an appliance person. I'm like, oh my God, like this was this, was this what got him on the radar to play Mario Mario? <laughs> yeah, if only his partner had been wearing a green cap, it would have just been perfect. Which I'll say, I loved those two characters. I thought their dynamic, especially when they bring up the form, the form, the form, a 92B. It's like, I love absurd comedy. And I think that this movie did do a fantastic job of a dystopian, absurdist comedy. 
Um, it is if Salvador Dali had wanted to create a dystopian movie, this to me, it w- he would have fallen very, very much into this category. I'm glad you enjoyed those character interactions between Bob Hoskins and his partner, because that's Brett when I really it, I knew I was in for a chore to finish this movie because <laughs> I found out for the first time that Terry Gilliam uh, is synonymous with the Monty Python. Mm, oh, yeah. Comedy. Tri- I did not know that. And once I realized that and saw the style of comedy this movie was going for, I was like, it's going to be a long two hours plus. And uh, well, I- I'll save it for for Amazon River, because this is a very much a dystopian mm. view of the future. Um, well, you know what? Look, did you have anything else for Practical Magic? Well, no. The only thing I'll follow that was because just because you brought it up, like I really was expecting a who's who of Monty Python to be when when Michael Palin showed up, uh, who played Jack Lint. He was another member of Monty Python. I was really expecting like, okay, when's John Cleese? You know, when's when are a bunch of the other members? Like at one point, I thought one of the women was actually uh, one of the one of the actors from Monty Python. So I I thought it was going to be a who's who at cer- at a certain point. Then it wound up just being. Michael Palin was the only other person from that troupe that that showed up, but yeah, I mean, this is very much a a British absurd, dark absurdist comedy. Yeah, and I don't think stylistically some of the stuff that we like as as movie fans, there's a ton of overlap on our Venn diagram. I think one area that we have always been at complete opposite ends of the spectrum is how we feel about Monty Python. I remember that always being a great joy of you of yours. And it's torture for me to watch it. So yeah. And watching this movie, you know what movie I was reminded of? And we, we've already reviewed it for this podcast. I had a lot of the same feelings I had when I watched Don't Look Up, um, where I was like, all oh, of this wow, is okay. ridiculous. But it doesn't feel ridiculous enough because, hey, you know, the government's not going to, you know, snatch you off the street and throw you into a van. And I'm like, well, yeah, they will. <laughs> we're, we're living that that future. And, you know, all the bureaucratic red tape, um, you know, do you know what uh, I think it's called like practiced obsolescence? Have you heard that term? Mm-mm. So like it, it's what Apple got in trouble for multiple times, basically making their phones harder to work on for just a regular person so that you have to go through Apple, um, slowing it down when you upgrade it so that you're forced to buy stuff more quickly. And again, the ridiculousness of, you know, hey, you have to have a particular form. You can't work on your own, you know, central air conditioning unit. Robert De Niro is. We're going to get into him. We're going to get into him. So if you want to bring it up now, just that is one of our five points. So, okay, I'm not going to get too much into him, but he's considered a terrorist. (laughs) And ultimately, I think he's considered a terrorist just because he prevents. He's the loophole to practice obsolescence. He can just come in and fix your air conditioner in 10 minutes, whereas, you know, you would have to be waiting weeks for an officially sanctioned repair. And again, as ridiculous as that stuff seems in the movie, I'm like, wait, no, this is just all these movies, you know, 1984, you know, Dr. Love. God, I definitely don't want to watch Dr. Love in today's climate. So this is a personal bias, but. It mentally fatigued me to try to watch this. Like, don't look up. I still had a couple of chuckles because Adam McKay comedy, mm-hmm. as hit or miss as it is, is much more in my wheelhouse than Monty Python. So I had an absurd comedy style that I hate while talking about a subject matter that just felt all too real, down to, you know, 
uh, our main character is an office drone. I work in an office, you know, uh, you know, I do this podcast partially as an escape, uh, much like his, his flying dreams are. So yeah, I, it took me literally a week to watch this movie, which is part of the reasons, you know, we were delayed. Um, and just real quick, also, I believe you choosing this movie caused the Kentucky Wildcats men's basketball team to have a historic defeat at the hands of St. Peter's. Maybe it was my psychic connection to the team, but ultimately it's because of Brazil and it's because of you, Brett. <laughs> well, not to mention the weird weather patterns that showed up because of watching this movie as well. Yeah, so we were supposed to record this um, <laughs> yesterday. Um and I could not because on Friday night, uh, we had a random tornado warning uh, in the middle of the night that blew a transformer right by my uh, house. And I was without power for about 36 hours. Uh, so we had to push this recording, I think, for its second and third times, respectively, mm -hmm. uh, you know, due to uh, essentially uh, the movie Twister breaking out right in my backyard. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, like you said, this has a, a feel of, of, of the Don Quixote film that never got produced, but a documentary of its failed attempt to be made uh, was made because it was so entertaining. And it kind of feels like, uh, yeah, this this definitely has some Terry Gilliam vibes because uh, in Scary Terry, I've got some other stuff about him. But, uh, yeah, um, the dystopian future movies, I, I just don't know if I can watch them anymore because we clearly didn't get the warnings uh, in them. Well, the problem is, is all dystopian future movies, it's always like this bleak, like, you know, uh, East Germany type like, or West Der Germany, where it's like it's concrete buildings and everything's drab. And that's that's how you can tell it's dystopian, because, you know, all the colors been removed and nothing. The saturation's way down and like everybody's just kind of a drone as opposed to our dystopian today, where it's like, no, it, it's still this. But it's like, again, like you were saying with the Apple iPhone, like, no, it's just it's bright and shiny and the marketing is much better. So you don't quite realize like, no, we kind of did follow that path. We just made sure that we didn't allow the dirt and grime to attach itself to where you would realize it. Yeah, no, 100 percent. So I don't I don't know about you. Like, do the dystopian future movies do? Have your has if your views changed on them in the in the past three to four years? Because I used to love all of that that genre, and now I I just can't seem to stomach them. Um, I think it's uh, kind of like what you're getting. I think I had to take it in in pieces. Like I couldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do a dystopian future trilogy unless it's like one of them's like Mad Max, where it's like, no, this is clearly like okay, the Road Warrior is is far enough out, you know, where I I can deal with it being not the. You know, you know, you're saying Brazil or even, yeah, I, I, I would, I would have to take them in, in small dosages. Yeah. And I was thinking of the scene in the restaurant where, um, I'm sorry, I haven't even used his character name. What's our main character? Sam, Sam, Sam Lowry. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Lowry's at dinner with his plastic surgery addicted mother. Uh, and I guess her other friends and associates, and there's an explosion in the restaurant and, they completely just do their best to ignore it down to the waiter, bringing them a partition so that they continue, they can continue their meal. Uh, and just behind that partition, of course, all hell's breaking loose and, and the restaurant's on fire. But again, as funny as I thought that was, I was like, yeah, no, that's again, try to enjoy your, your life as the world burns around you. Again, I'm just like, I, I can't laugh at this. This is just making me depressed. Well, even then, I mean, 
that was definitely a focus of that scene for me, but also the the them actual dining that although it was just the same like, you know, uh paste pate and it's like you had to have a picture that showed what you were eating. Like I want the steak and when the steak came out it was the it was just a different colored paste and it has the number on the image next to it so that he knows what he's supposed to be eating. And I thought what even to that extent was like, oh, this is like they just take the the enjoyment out of everything. Yeah, and he, I love the the disingenuous waiter who is, you know, everybody asks him for a recommendation and he gives different numbers to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need you to say the number. <laughs> I just want the steak. Three, say number three. And then again, to just further illustrate some of the uh, boring dystopia parallels to just my everyday life and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast the uh the refund check once they realize there's been a mistake with you know who was targeted um and they have to process the refund check and the widow doesn't have a bank account and his boss uh kurtzman uh played by ian holm i believe his only concern and he doesn't care that they've they've killed the wrong man uh he doesn't care about any of that he's just worried that his department will be blamed if the check is not cashed that is his only concern. And then, that's corporate America, unfortunately, as a whole. Like, just point the point the finger, point the finger. Yeah, we're not concerned about actually addressing the problem so long as we don't get blamed for the problem. And then, again, I found it hilarious, but too, too close to home that, you know, Kurtzman, the middle, manage, middle manager, he can't even sign the check. He's like, you know, oh, my, my, my wrist mm-hmm. is too weak. And he has Sam just sign it for him. So, yeah. Even down to the, the corporate America, I know this is not technically based anywhere. I guess, like you said, it, it's more British than anything. But it just it just felt too close to home. Mm-hmm. And I titled it Amazon River, by the way, because, I mean, I think you could draw a straight line from, you know, I wanted to be cute. Jeff Bezos is Amazon. And, of course, Amazon mm. is in Brazil. So it just feels like society's riding that Amazon River. Everything can be blowing up. But, hey, you got free next day shipping. Everything's okay. Yep. No, I... Uh... Didn't know where you're going with Amazon River, but I like it. You know, I can always appreciate. I hope the audience does. We intentionally try to make these things hard to figure out um, so that it's it's kind of fun with the reveal. One that's not very hard to figure out is Icarus, because I think it was <laughs> pretty apparent uh, in the beginning with him flying. I was surprised that they weren't supposed they didn't wind up being wax wings. But I mean, I I can only assume that they were intentionally doing like he flew too cr- close to the sun in order to get to the girl. And ultimately it winds up, you know, hit he meets his demise because he he decides to get too close to to actually caring yeah exactly his his downfall is he's you know finally wants to break out of his monotonous life but you know there are systems in place to prevent you from doing that yep so i mean not a lot to say with that one just you know it is some of the clear symbolism throughout the movie him losing his wings as he goes to try and, and save his damsel in distress um Speaking of which, <laughs> can I ask you what you thought the weirdest fucking line in the entire movie was? Because I can tell you exactly what it was. When I, I literally uh, was like, what the fuck joke are we making right now? Uh, it was such a labor for me to finish the movie. It was it was just a an endurance event for me. So, I no, what, what line are you referring to? When Sam comes back um, after his mission to save Kim... Um, or sorry, Jill, Kim's the act, uh, Kim Gris, Christ, uh, played Jill Layton. Uh, he comes back and tells Jill that he killed her, that she's no longer in the system. And she looks at him and says, care for some necrophilia. And I was just like, 
that was oh, God, just like yeah. what a, that's the that's the joke that took me out of the movie i'm like what <laughs> who wrote that line <laughs> like and how many times did you have to deliver it before like it, it felt somewhat natural like care for some necrophilia well and you know what here's i wasn't gonna really get into this unless you kind of touched on it and i almost feel like you might agree with me but if, if one of your tropes of your movie is you're going to feature a girl of, of somebody's dreams and then they meet them in reality, it's really important to cast a good actress. I mm. thought the actress they cast was a glaring weak spot in this movie. And it's just one of those things where if if, if I can't see the girl of your dreams as being my girl of, of my dreams, I'm kind of just like, wait, why why are you so caught up in this and i just thought i looked at some of the other casting rumors for her and anybody else would have been better than who they chose well it almost felt like they were going like a tank girl type thing where like she was supposed to be like she, i thought she was going to wind up being part of the anti-establishment and she wound up not being which i thought would have been more interesting for her character and then even then it's one of those like okay girl the dreams like i never believed why their romance worked at all like i mean sam wound up completely fucking her over and then they get back to his mom's apartment and all of a sudden, like, okay, she's kind of falling for him, I guess, because he's persistent. I'm like, I didn't understand why they why they had any chemistry. I mean, I don't think they, they had any acting, but I'm saying it, narratively why they would have suddenly, like, found comfort in one another. Like, I think a previous scene, like, right before that scene was where he basically accused her of being a bomber and then found out, no, she was trying to bribe officials, you know yeah and i don't i don't think either portrayal works like if she's gonna be this tank girl you know possible freedom fighter then she should be portrayed the actress to me was just kind of a limp fish like i couldn't mm -hmm. tell what she was trying to play i mean i jonathan price is a good actor he's he's great at doing the nervous bumbling sweaty you know mm -hmm. middle management type but again, I don't know why she would desire a person like that and why he desires her. So I guess it's not super important to the movie. Uh, it's more of a commentary on the future. But still, those are technically your two leads. And I just I it was a distraction the whole way for me. But yeah. I, I figured maybe you would like it more because it's in the Monty Python style. But for me, it was it was dead on arrival. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't think that yeah, their their chemistry was at all. I, I would say I don't think it was supposed to be comedic at all. I just felt it was one of those. Or are you talking about the, the joke? The joke was just fucking weird to me. And it felt even for an absurd, absurdist comedy like that joke didn't feel appropriate for this movie whatsoever. Like it, it felt so out of place. Like I just have no idea. Again, completely took me out of what was going on. Like where did that joke come from care from some necrophilia yeah it's a bad line i don't think it would have worked either way but maybe if you had a if the betrayal of her was more femme fatale the whole way i could imagine mm -hmm. a universe where you know charming and quick-witted she could make that comment but yeah it, it just stuck out like a sore thumb so well do you want to end five points on a high note or, or a low note because I think it depends on if we go Scary Terry or the hero we need, not the hero we deserve next. Uh, well, Scary Terry for me is going to be just uh, kind of the weird history of him as a director. I just wanted to touch on a couple of weird things. So I don't know if it'll necessarily be negative. 
Okay. I had read some of the stuff on it. He seems like a just complete fucking asshole. Um, and some of the stuff I like where he just blatantly like he doesn't want to give people the credit until like it comes up and it's like, no, we actually have like years ago you said this and then he'll like begrudgingly be like, okay, I guess that actually ha-. like he he kind of comes off as a as a total piece of shit and some of the stuff that I've read. Oh, interesting. I don't know if I, I read any of that. I kind of what I was talking about is this dude is notorious for not being able to get a movie off the ground. Well, not to spoil a later segment, it seems like he's notorious for not making any money. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I guess I'll just touch on it really quick. Uh, some of his failed projects. Um, he attempted to do a version of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which collapsed due to disagreements over its budget and the choice of a lead actor. Uh, he He's one of the many, well, actually, he attempted twice to adapt Alan Moore's Watchmen comics to film in 89 and 96. Uh, Both were obviously unsuccessful. Uh, He famously said it was unfilmable. Uh, And then, as we have already discussed, in 99, he attempted to film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, budgeted at $32 billion, uh, among the highest budgeted films to use only European financing. But in the first week of shooting, the actor playing Don Quixote suffered a herniated disc. A flood severely damaged the set. Uh, the film was canceled, leading to an insurance claim of $15 million, uh, and it led to the documentary Lost in La Mancha, uh, which was basically a documentary of, of what a massive failure it was. Well, and then there's an actual movie called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, starring um, Adam Driver, that I believe is based on... Uh, like a fictional telling of this yeah. process? Interesting, interesting. I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? I have not. I honestly wanted to see it just because it was in 2018. Um, I'm trying to see what we got here. Uh, the screenplay is by Terry Gilliam, like and directed by Terry Gilliam. So like, it's him directing a movie about him trying to direct a movie. <laughs> like it's it's again, it's very meta. Um, which maybe it should have been in the Hollywood meta trilogy, but no. I I and it guess who it stars? Well, Adam Driver. And Jonathan Price. <laughs> oh no shit! Okay. Yeah, so he played. Yeah, I like I said, it's one of those I've I wanted to watch it because it looked very interesting. Yeah, actually, I, I, I I'll try to find that one because that does sound intriguing to me yeah. as well. Uh, but yeah, and then last he tried to direct an adaptation of Good Omens by Terry Pratchard and Neil Gammon, uh, but. The studios pushed back about the apocalyptic thing uh, because in the wake of 9-11, they found it unacceptable. So, mm-hmm. again, Terry Gilliam, you know, people, actors breaking their backs, the sets flooding, 9-11 happening, like everything that Our happened podcast. with this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Terry Gilliam out here causing a, a lot of disasters that maybe people don't know about. And I'm not just talking about his box office gross. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple because uh, apparently he's claimed that this movie is part of a trilogy. Uh, I guess he kind of follows the same thing with us. He likes to make movies and trilogies, uh, even if they kind of overlap with the Venn diagram. But it was kind of like the escapist trilogy for him. And it was Time Bandits, which was a child trying to escape kind of reality. Then there was Brazil, which was a middle-aged man trying to kind of escape reality. And then The Adventures of Baron Munchausen um, was supposed to be like uh, an older person trying to escape their reality, which I can remember. I've always wanted to go back and rewatch 
um, the adventures of Baron Munchausen because I remember I must have been like 10 or 11 when I watched that movie and like there are scenes in that movie that are like ingrained in my brain to the point where like there was times where I was trying to find out what the movie was because I could I kept remembering things about the movie because it is again very a very strange like adventure film um, and again kind of that absurd uh, absurdist almost um what is it? Uh, surrealist kind of like movie where I, I would actually love to go back and, and rewatch the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Well, I didn't bring that one up. It's interesting from now, from now, yeah. from time to time, I like to call artists out on their bullshit. He says that he did, you know, a trilogy of, you know, characters trying to escape the realities. As far as I'm concerned, that's all he ever directs. Um, <laughs> 12 monkeys. Be- 12 monkeys it's it's a debate on is he crazy trying to escape his life as a prisoner so, or is he actually time traveling actually that one's part of his dystopian trilogy which also includes brazil <laughs> so again oh, when i was okay. saying so Venn he, diagram some of his movies wind up being in multiple trilogies of his well what about the fisher king because that's also a guy a homeless guy not mm-hmm. wanting to face the fact that he's homeless and creating this fantastical backstory for himself. And then the other Terry Gilliam movie I've seen is Tideland, which you said, uh, you know, there was one of the movies about a kid trying to escape their their terrible reality. That's what mm-hmm. Tideland is, too. So, <laughs> you know, you can say trilogy, you can say Venn diagram. I say the man's got a theme and he, he makes yeah. it quite a bit. He's a one-trick fucking pony, is what he's saying. Even like Don Quixote, but what's the whole point of that? Uh, yeah, I think you're onto something there, Travis. I think you're onto something. Um, so we'll conclude five points with what I feel is the shining, the pinnacle of this movie. My favorite part of this entire movie is none other than Bobby D. When he showed up on screen, I was immediately happy. Um, his portrayal of Harry Tuttle, I, from beginning to end, absolutely loved. Even fantasy Harry Tuttle. I, uh, I loved Robert De Niro in this movie as the, the renegade repairman. <laughs> We're in this together, kid. Yeah, and even that, like, his when he delivers that line, I think he does it, what, two or three times in the mm-hmm. movie? Again, as I was having a a bit of a nervous breakdown watching this movie, I appreciated that character the most because that's thematically that's the only kind of rebuttal and retort um, to this kind of dystopian society is realizing we're all in it together, kids. So I've never seen him portray. I've I've seen him portray crazy like in. um, Oh, God. Analyze this. he, he kind of plays. No, I was going even Kate Fear. I, oh, I've God. seen him play crazy, like I don't <laughs> oh, want to be alone crazy. in a room with him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know the hint of the. I've never seen him play such a kind of. I don't. I don't think Happy Go Lucky is the performance, but irreverent and charming. I, I don't know how to describe it. It sounds like you've got more to say. So please. No, I just. I like I said when he shows up on screen with the gun, like I had no idea what was going on with his character, but like. When he shows up and then when he winds up switching the AC and the septic tank to where Bob Hawk, they, they fill up with <laughs> their, their suits, fill up with shit. Um, I absolutely love that. And even in the fantasy thing later when he shows up with the, the rest of the, you know, the terror. Oh, we, I should have made that a five point. We need, we have to talk about shit. I'm going to sidetrack this because I'm going to forget and the flow of things. We'll get back to, to Harry Tuttle here, but 
did you feel that it was implied that there were not actually terrorists that it was the government was basically blowing stuff up intentionally almost a v for vendetta like we need to show them why they need us type thing where like they're creating the 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 problems that they have to fix okay I'm getting a yes. nod from Travis. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, the only other interpretation that I might have is just the the overly bureaucratic way that everything is run leads to disasters. I'm thinking like you know the reason we have such tight OSHA regulations and stuff is is to prevent that kind of stuff. The the again I was talking about the, the planned obsolescence. It's either intentional on the government's part or it's pure incompetence. But it's it's either way you cut it, it's a dig at, at the government creating its own problems yeah and either it, it intentionally was a, it was or a, unintentionally yeah it was a throwaway line by jill layton that wound up she says something like have you ever actually met a terrorist and i'm like is she trying to imply that there are no terrorists which is the way i kind of took it or just that like maybe terrorists aren't who you think they are is the other like that fork in the road like is she trying to say like you know hypothetically terrorists these terrorists against the government could actually be really good people you just don't know who they are you haven't actually met them you assume that they're the boogeyman because that's what the government tells you or the other again direction i took it was like there aren't actually any terrorists the government is actually the one who is bombing everything again to create this sense of like oh there is a threat out there that you need us to essentially protect you from even though the threat is essentially created by them well, I think what Brett's trying to say, and you can go ahead and quote him on this, he believes 9-11 was an inside job. <laughs> I'm um, going to have to cut that out. <laughs> but no, that's interestingly, knock- I Wait, think- that's weird. There's a knock on my door. I, I just got to go <laughs> get that real quick. Oh, but Brett, it looks like there's a little hole, little leak in your ceiling there. Is it? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think even... If you, the government might view Robert De Niro as a terrorist and call him a terrorist for the simple fact that he is circumventing a system that they put in place. So that could be the level of what they consider terrorists, just anybody who goes against the well-established system. So, yeah, but terrorists are 100% not what we're led to believe they are, mm-hmm. at least by this dystopian government. And you you touch on the line he says like you know I got into the job not to do all the paperwork and all this it's you know it, it was the adventure and I, again he's a he's an AC repairman is essentially what he is and he's talking about like the life of adventure and all that I'm like that essentially the the this dystopian feature this police state it has created a situation in which like the your everyday man is essentially your hero and I actually I you know your blue your blue collar worker is actually the hero but they wind up becoming the villain because you have a government that is ultimately trying to prevent them from from being able to work and do their job yeah i'm glad you mentioned that there was a big you know blue collar versus white collar uh you know yin and yang between uh jonathan price's character and and tuttle sam and tuttle um but yeah it's just uh and then the, the ultimate, it, granted it wasn't a dream sequence, but his ultimate demise, you know, that's when you realize that they were in a dream sequence because at first you're like, oh, is Sam actually, you know, was Harry actually part of the resistance, you know, is is he saving Sam? And then all I could think is like a saving private I'm like, a lot of resistance fighters are dying for Sam. Like, I didn't realize that Sam and Harry were that close that they're really willing to resist. And then when when Harry ultimately disappears into the, the paperwork, the bureaucratic, bureaucratic nightmare, um, that his paperwork essentially consumes him. Uh, you realize you're in a dream sequence, but 
a fitting end to, to Harry's Harry's character, even if it be it in a, in a dream sequence. Yeah, and uh, I love the trope of, you know, a character thinks that this is reality and then, oh, no, you know, I think we kind of touched on this in Total Recall is, is Quaid in the chair the whole time. So I was glad to see that trope come back. Absolutely. And so, goddamn, that, that baby mask, I have to say, was the creepiest thing in this movie. I will, I can close my eyes and see that baby mask. Which is weird because it's, they wait so long to introduce it. We get introduced to the baby mask in a dream sequence before it's actually introduced uh, via Jack Lynn's character because the, like, the weird shadow, like, crawly things in, uh, in Sam's dreams that are, like, they have the, jill shackled in the cage and they're the ones kind of holding the chains like they have the baby faces and i'm like we haven't even been introduced to them for sam to have had this as an influence but like yeah that winds up coming up later that uh you know that essentially that's what jack wears whenever he is operating on on a uh i don't know what you want to call them degenerate yeah it very much felt to me like jack has to wear the mask to Kind of like you brought up in Drive to disassociate himself from what he's doing a little bit. Even even some of Jack's has some of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> when he's like, uh, oh, what is it? Sam's like, oh, you know, how are the twins doing? Oh, they're actually triplets now. How time flies. <laughs> it's like, I love that line. And then later when when Sam's in Jack's office, he's like, oh, is this one of the trips? He goes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> just like he's so dis he, he doesn't really know anything else or again I, i'm surprised that you didn't laugh more at this movie because there's another sequence when when you know sam is talking with jack and his wife and it's like oh she had the operation done and blah 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 and it's like oh yes i can tell they're they're much larger her ears she had her ears brought in and it's like i knew what the punchline was gonna be but i was still laughing knowing going into it exactly where that where they were going to take that joke like she had her ears brought pulled in oh exactly that's what i meant yes exactly your your ears <laughs> yeah I, I, i've smiled more in the recording of this podcast than i did the whole movie so <laughs> I, again it, i i understand that this is is funny for a large segment of people it's it, not for me though yeah um but i think that that pretty much concludes us with five points i uh I definitely, like I said, Harry, Robert De Niro uh, as Harry Tuttle, completely unexpected. Especially, I think he's the, is he the only American in this film? I'm trying to look at the cat. I can't think of anybody else, but it's just, it was, I was not expecting Robert De Niro. And the first time he comes on screen, you he, you get his, vo his face is covered. So you hear his voice first. Yeah, I had no idea that he was even in this movie. I, in this case, oh, I tried I to do this you? little research. All right, can you not hear me? Oh, Again Hello? with the cursed recording of this episode. God. Are you back? Yeah, I, nothing has changed for me. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know De Niro was in it at all. I didn't do any research. And by the way, Kim Kim Greist is also American. Oh, see, she's so forgettable. I, <laughs> I'm looking at the cast list, and she's number two, and I still just completely missed her. 
yeah, I wouldn't have liked this movie anyway, but it, it could have really used a, a better lead. Jamie Lee Curtis, Rebecca DeMornay, Radon Chong, Rosanna Arquette, Kelly McGillis, and Madonna all were considered. I would have taken any one of them over wow. Kim Christ. Yeah. Already, and Madonna sir. could have done her, her shitty British accent that she likes to pretend she has anyway. <laughs> Listen, she can be where she wants to be from, all right? All right. I think that about does it for five point inspection. I think we can go ahead and do uh we can get into blue book, tag and title and and, uh, and time capsule and then we'll we'll finish this out with a chop shop and final verdicts here, but um let's go ahead and do a blue book. All right, Travis. I might have tipped my hand a little bit. Uh Gross worldwide in Canada, our U.S. and Canada are the same this week, so you're only guessing one number. But I'm going to give you the ticket value, what this movie cost, estimated. I want you to tell me what you think it brought in. All right, box office. This movie came in estimated at $15 million. What do you think it brought in? Um... Well, you didn't spoil it. I mean, you did tip your hand that it was a flop, but... If it's directed by Terry Gilliam, there's a good chance it's a flop. So I'll say 3.8 million. Oh, damn. You thought it was a, a huge flop. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a co complete guess, but. Uh, about 9.9 .9 million. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it, uh, it did not, it did not do well. Not as bad as, well, I don't know. Maybe as bad as. Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers. I shouldn't tell you because I'm going to try and get you to watch this uh, when the new Mario Brothers movie comes out. I want to do a, a video game trilogy. Um, but yeah, Mario Brothers had a much wider divide. I can't believe how much the Mario Brothers movie cost in 1993. Why, uh, but did Terry, Terry Gilliam didn't direct Mario Brothers, did he? No, but I had the tab up oh. here, so I just wanted to know. Gotcha. I thought it would be funny if... because. Mario Brothers is a notorious, like, that movie was not well-received. Um, I, I thought it would be funny if that one wound up being actually uh, more profitable. So, all right. You, you ready to do some tag and title? Let's do it. All right, Travis. In keeping with our theme of this being an abnormal recording... I changed. I'm, I'm going to give you two personal taglines this week. All right. So still sticking with three. It's just two are going to be made up by you. No, you're going to get real? four. So oh, okay. Ty typical rules are I will give you three taglines. One is an official tagline of this movie. One is a tagline of a movie I found adjacent. And one is a tagline that I created myself. And your objective is to pick out the tagline for this movie. This week, though. I'm giving you four taglines. One is from this movie, one is from an adjacent movie, and two are from me. And you have to figure out which one came from this movie. Are you ready? <clears throat> Hit me. All right. I'll have you know, I wanted to do V for Vendetta, but that one was a dead fucking giveaway, so I couldn't do it. Um. All right, here we go. Make no mistake... Be sure to document your enjoyment. Have a laugh at the horror of things to come. Form over function. And Big Brother is watching. 
Big Brother is watching, I'm going to say it's 1984. Okay. Um, you said form over function. That's one of them. Your remaining three are... Oh, sorry. I'll say you made that one up, but go ahead and give me the other two. The other two are have a laugh at the horror of things to come and make no mistake, be sure to document your enjoyment. See, that one, make no mistake, make sure to document your enjoyment. It feels perfect. So it makes me think you made it up. But then the other one, you know, take joy in the horror that is to come. I feel like you specifically made that one due to my sabbatical this movie forced me to take <laughs> so i'm gonna say that's actually the one you made up um leaving the first one as the official tagline or one of the official taglines of brazil so the first one being make no mistake yeah i think that's legitimately the, okay. one of the taglines for the movie you you nailed the adjacent big brothers watching was 1984 yeah, have that was a laugh. hanging fruit. Yeah, have a laugh at the horror of things to come was an official tagline for this movie. Meaning, make no mistake, be sure to document your enjoyment and form over function both being mine. Well done. Well done. And I have to say for the official tagline, I, I was not able to accomplish that. I was not able to have a laugh at the horrors to come. Um, this had four additional taglines that I'd like to share because I actually thought this movie had a, a pretty solid bunch um what well this may uh it's only a state of mind so brazil it's only a state of mind uh we're all in this together or we're all in it together i thought was a, a dead giveaway um this is a you know it's about it's too long uh it's about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality terrorist bombings and late night shopping true love and creative plumbing and suspicion breeds confidence. Confidence or competence? Confidence. It was one of the posters in the background. Suspicion uh, okay. breeds confidence. So those are some of the additional taglines for this movie. But uh, yeah. There we go. There we have it. There's your tag and title for Brazil. You got a, you got a, uh, a time capsule for us? Uh, I do. Is it just a bullet list of Terry Gilliam flops? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, this this one was a, it was in the trivia, so I don't know if you read it, the the IMDb trivia, but this one I know you called him an asshole earlier, and, and maybe it's appropriate still, but this seems like a Brett Mosher style move. What he did here, probably an asshole. Um, <laughs> So I'm just going to read this. Terry Gilliam was asked to do a film class during the filming of this movie at the University of Southern California. Terry agreed and took advantage of the situation by preparing to bring an audiovisual aid, which was his cut of Brazil. Uh, unfortunately, two days before the event, students advertised a free screening of the movie. And when he arrived, it was announced that Universal Pictures would not allow him to show it. Uh, during his speech to the class, he was literally interrupted by a studio executive's phone calls. Um, they eventually said that he could show a clip. Uh, and he said, OK, I'll just show a clip and then showed the entire movie every time he taught the class. 
And that is ultimately how the movie won the Los Angeles, California Movie Critics Award without actually having been theatrically released at the time, which then put so much pressure on the studio that they had to release his cut. Yeah, because I did not know that specific point, but I do know that uh, apparently the studio wanted a much uh, lighter ending. They thought the ending was far too dark and they, they kept trying to change that. Yeah, I've heard there's a version that exists that kind of is the Blade Runner setup where we're going to give you some narration over the end credits to try to change what actually happens. But I've, I've never seen that cut, of course. Uh, but just yeah. the the rebel and Terry Gilliam, that, that screamed a little <laughs> bit of Brett Mosher. Like, oh, I can't show the whole movie, just a clip. OK, sure. Well, it's going to be a two and a half hour clip. Yeah, <laughs> I ended it right before the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that's the kind of like rebel you know, filmmaking rebellion against studios that I think that is dead as dead can be. You would never see something so bold these days. Even somebody oh. like Shane Black, you know, gets his version of the Predator literally cut in half with studio edits. So that those days are, are long gone. Well, yeah, that's the problem is I think you'd have to somehow get it into your contract because, I mean, how many times is it it's basically a studio decides, mm, we don't like the direction you're taking this, so we're going to cut you and put in a new director. I mean, I always go back to the Han Solo one-off movie that no one needed or really wanted. Um, I would have loved to have seen, um, I forget the name of the, the two Lord guys. Taylor? Yeah. What their original cut of that was going to be. Cause I feel like it would have been far more interesting. The Ron Howard one was just so fucking generic that it's, you know, yeah, you brought in Ron Howard. You, you, because you knew exactly the, the, the happy studio that you're, you know, cut of this movie that you were going to wind up getting. So. Uh, yeah. yeah. If you want a uh, PB and J on white bread, Ron Howard's always going to be your guy. Yep. So, but yeah, that that's exactly what they do is they'll just, they'll bring, I mean, fuck the Snyder cut. I mean, we might start seeing that at this point it has to be the fan base has to rally and has to, to basically protest in order to make anything happen because they, I mean, with the, what is it, Justice League, where Joss Whedon came in because he was so successful with the Avengers and then basically tried to make a really weird, like, God. I mean, neither version of the Justice League worked, but at least the Snyder one had, I guess, his complete vision behind it. It was really just longer. I don't think it really enhanced the movie at all. Yeah, and I start to wonder if we'll ever reach a point where studios cynically will just try to double dip like let's shoot enough footage where we could reconstruct this as something completely different and then get two box office runs at it oh you mean like the batman i mean you won't get a box office run. i think it's gonna wind up being you get a box office run where it tests well with audiences so you can get that that dollar dollar and then it's like okay now we'll release this the alternate version on our streaming service hoping that we can get people to come back but if you didn't like it then at least we didn't lose those ticket that ticket price yeah, or in the Batman's case, like, hey, are you really excited to see Colin Farrell as Penguin? Well, he's barely going to be in the movie, but if you want more, it's coming to HBO Max next fall. <laughs> Unless, of course, you didn't like it, at which point we're going to cancel the series and go in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, the, the the PR spin would be, you know, uh, this is this is the movie Matt Reeves wanted to make, but due to time constraints, couldn't. So, yeah, there'll always be a spin on time how it's either exactly what you wanted yeah. or completely different. Mm -hmm. So... 
Alrighty, sir. Well, then I think that leaves us with our chop shops. Are you ready to get in some choppy chop? Do you have a chop so, shop this week or am I here, going here, solo? Here, here's much like Lord and Taylor. Uh, no, I'll be frank with you, Brett. I, I I was supposed to have Oscar bait for Brazil. If I had gotten any sort of other category, I, I would have given it a go. But my go-to when making Oscar bait is to give somebody a disability or give someone a dead parent or a parent that's in prison. I I didn't want to make this movie any more depressing than it already was, but here's I'll just give you the quick elevator pitch just to say that I did complete the assignment so I can get a D plus instead of an F. You ever do that back in school, Brad? Uh-huh. So yeah. you, you can't fail me. I turned something in. Uh, um, hold on. Let me. Sam mm-hmm. Lowry and Harry Tuttle. It, it they're the same guy. Oh, so it's like a fight club. His yeah, his escapism as he's dreaming of uh, you know flying over this beautiful countryside to save the woman. He's actually fully awake. He's out repairing things at night to cut through the bureaucratic bullshit that he helps perpetuate during the day. Okay, so it is like Fight Club. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when I said that, it, it, I literally was—I hit it on the, <laughs> the yeah, nail yeah. on the head. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. I like yeah. that. I like that's a fight club a, version of Brazil. And you know, the bonus feature on on my uh, chop shop would be the behind the scenes making of this podcast. You know, it would feature me standing <laughs> on my back deck, thinking a tornado is about to hit me, uh, and then calling you and scaring the shit out of you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so that that's it. Okay. Well, you know, you there you go. You turned it in. Uh, we, you could say that you your your record of completing a chop shop every episode <laughs> is it is it stands. You know, I'm still undefeated. Yep. Uh huh. You didn't default. Um. <laughs> so, all right. You well, can't take uh, my co-hosting job away from me. Uh. <laughs> I I got horror. So um. I'm sure you're thinking, how could I turn this into more of a horror movie? Um, but I, I think I did. Um, some of my influences were little, little film called Dark City, maybe a little Nightmare on Elm Street. All right. Uh, it shouldn't take me too long to get through it, so we'll we'll jump right in. So Sam Larry lives a particularly average life for someone as well connected as he is. You know, we've established that his his mom was higher up. His father is most likely the head of what is it mi whatever the, the group is uh you know i felt like that was implied at the end with her picture that you know sam's father wasn't was actually the you know was it mr what the fuck was the guy's name hemingworth or something like that or fuck what was uh mr Heltman. so uh are you still here yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I'm looking at the wiki. Okay, sorry. All right, so Mr. Heltman. Um, 
So he enjoys cinema uh, and escapism. Um, it kind of provides him something from the mundane world around him. He dreams usually his dreams usually involve uh, saving a woman uh, he's never met, nor he knows her name. Uh, when his mother gets him a promotion, he promptly turns it down, much like this movie, uh, which leads his mother to get him medically examined by a state-issued doctor. All right, because it's unheard of. You're getting a promotion in this world like you take it, right? regardless of how you got it. So while in the waiting room, Sam is given a series of forms to fill out and he signs uh, to sign. And when he comes across a picture of, of Jill, the woman from his dreams, thinking she's the girl from his dreams, he feels he needs to meet her in person, right? Like what's this picture here? Like I thought this was just a woman in my dreams. Uh, he winds up being distracted. And before he can finish filling out his forms, he's escorted back to the doctor. So he essentially turns in his clipboard without everything being completely filled out and signed. But the doctor winds up being a good friend of his, Jack Lind. Jack's office is stark with a series of propaganda posters in it. Before each, ses before each session where he's examined, essentially kind of like a psychiatrist, um, Sam is asked to inhale a particular gas that will relax him. It's not long before Sam enters into another dreamlike state, right? And every time he winds up going in, he winds up basically entering a world of one of these propaganda posters that's up on the wall, right? So the first one will be, we're all in this together. So in this one, Sam has a fantasy where he's part of a family. They begin to be, but they begin to be murdered by the doll face man, your Freddy, you know, Freddy Krueger-like character. Sam wakes up in his apartment uh, and a sweat before the doll face is able to kill him um, and his pretend wife, Jill. So, like, as they're trying to escape, he winds up waking up before he's murdered in his dream. Uh, the next session will be loose talk is noose talk. So, in this one, Sam is the captain of an Old West train. He begins to tell Jill that he doesn't think everything is right. He's starting to realize maybe this is a dream. And that while he's in the uh, uh, while he is in the comfort just being on a train with no control, right? Something's not again. The train is the metaphor for his life, basically being on rails. Um, he's starting to think um, that he's not comfortable with just being on a train with no control. Um, he now thinks that the lack of choice that he has is a problem. He starts to speak out against the train company when the train is attacked by dollface bandits. The crew are killed with Sam waking up just before he and Jill can be killed on the train. All right. The next one is mind that parcel. Sam is a delivery driver, but what is he delivering? It turns out to be Jill. So maybe a little bit of a transporter situation here. Jason state the movie here. Um, when he realizes that Jill is in the trunk of the vehicle, uh, they're attacked by Dollface. wakes up again. So meanwhile, in between these sessions, Sam uh, has been trying to find Jill in real life, right? Because he keeps seeing her. While searching, Sam finds out her likeness was used in several propaganda campaigns, and that's why he knows her face and why he keeps dreaming of her. So again, now there's a connection as to why someone in real life would be in his dreams. Because um, that was a weird sticking point for me. I, in any movie, I hate when somebody dreams of somebody and then they show up in real life. It's like, that's it's a weird deja vu like if her face had been mostly covered and like he's making a, a general connection but whatever um so while searching uh now he has to find her because he knows that she really does exist and she was used for these propaganda posters while searching sam also comes across medical records from jack records that make him sound like more of an interrogator than a doctor 
So this is where we're starting to realize that Jack is now what he seems to be. Um, so our last poster is don't suspect a friend, report him. So this is where Sam realizes that the dollface killer is actually Jack and that he's being experimented on in the real world. Sam attempts to report him but realizes Jack is performing his state duty. And now Sam is a fugitive on the run. It's not long before he realizes that Sam has discovered that this is in his subconscious and that he's unable to actually stop Jack and the bureaucracy. The movie ends much in the same way with Sam dying after our recondition, our, the reconditioning fails again. Sam is able to defeat Dollface in his fantasy, but in the real world, he is rendered a vegetable uh, with st the state denying any accountability because Sam neglected to complete his intake form. Damn, I didn't see that coming. That's a nice <laughs> little cherry on top. <laughs> well, and God, I, I look, yeah, you did a good job of tying the dream world to the real world. Cause yeah, the propaganda posters seems to be good jumping off points and to be able to mix up your genres uh, for horror scenes. That's yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm you know what, Brett it, it, in the Hollywood chop shop, I'm kind of like a, a player and sometimes a player has a bad game and you need a good head coach <laughs> to make adjustments <laughs> on the fly and get the job done. And, mm -hmm. and you do that a lot better than John fucking Calipari. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he? Uh, firecoachcal.com. Check it out. <laughs> Wait, is that what you've been doing with your time? <laughs> I, I have been on some message boards. Uh, <laughs> you know, let my opinion be known. <laughs> oh, boy. But no, that that seriously was, that was brilliant. Uh, so thanks for, for saving the podcast this week. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, I, I, I'm just glad I was able to do coming. I like to get in there, you know, a one-man team. You know, in and out. So I wish I remember oh. more of the line. But uh, Travis, I don't think I have to guess your final verdict of this movie, but I'm going to ask anyway, just so we can get it, you know, on paper, get it filled out appropriately here. What were your what was your final thoughts of Brazil? It, it was not for me in any <laughs> form or fashion. Um but what I can say is it's completely for a subjective reason. I can't objectively say this was a terrible movie. It's just British comedy, specifically Monty Python, is like nails on a chalkboard for me. So check. And as much as I might have liked them 10 or 15 years ago, the a, this is where society's headed if we don't get our act straight kind of movies, I just can't watch them anymore because we never got our act straight and, and here we are. So um you know, again, I can enjoy Adam McKay's uh, spin on it a little bit more because it's 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 more of the Americanized, you know, Will Ferrell type of comedy. Uh, so not for me. If you're a Monty Python fan, you're a Terry Gilliam fan, or you're not, you know, overwhelmingly depressed by where society is, you might like it, but I'll never watch it again. What about I, you? I wonder, before I get into mine, if there if it's possible to find if people have compiled a list of like movies like post apocalyptic all oh, like you know we got it right movies like a course corrected trilogy where like they actually the movie had like a message and we actually we diverted and missed that <laughs> that asteroid or that dystopian future or what <laughs> didn't release the you know uh kaiju out of the the ice <laughs> that was uh entombing it like it'd, it'd be nice if there's that that course corrected trailer it's like oh actually no uh we actually were able to to correct our path here 
based on some uh, some people pointing it out to us. Yeah, I, I'll certainly try to scour the internet and find one because after this, I, I could use something where I'm like, you know what? Yeah, we for once we listened and, and averted disaster. Thank you for smoking. Can we? Is that one that we could put in there? We know smoking's bad at this point, right? We're not still fighting it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and lobbyists don't control anything. In God politics damn it, Travis. Anymore. Okay, That's I tried. I tried. All over. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you could just buy a senator. <laughs> In a vending machine. There you go. Uh, I enjoyed this movie. I liked it. Uh, as you said, I do enjoy Monty Python humor and British humor. So um, it was right up my alley. A lot of the jokes that they did make. I think maybe you would have enjoyed this movie because I think that helped as those jokes kind of helped kind of cut what's going on and kind of keep you going. Like that's the lifeline that keeps you getting to the end of the movie. And I, because you don't enjoy that humor, I don't think you ever got that. So you just kept getting dropped further and further into the abyss without any lifeline. So I can see where, you know, that, that might've been a bit of an issue for you, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, I guess there's probably better dystopian, I'm, you know, as we brought up fever vendetta is probably, one of my favorite dystopian films of all time. I just think it's it's very well done. Um, it's not a perfect adaptation from the comic book. I think the original creator was was not super happy with the the end result, but I think it was a, it was a good movie by the end. Um, plenty of quotable lines from that. I I did I enjoyed the movie. My my biggest gripe about it was again coming into it, you know with some level of influence i've seen so many trailer or not trailers but images and stills from this movie i was just expecting something a little zanier and crazier than what we actually got um i think there was a certain level of oh this could be a a bleak reality if, if you wanted to like it's an absurdist to a point but you know it's it's not that far-fetched where like you're like oh we can laugh at this because it'll never happen but uh in, in fewer words i liked it I think I, I would recommend people seeing it because um, it is a little bit out there. I'm honestly interested, again, Baron in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I remember, I I feel like that movie sticks with me more than this Brazil ever will, but I think it was important to watch Brazil just because, again, there I think there's a certain level of cultural impact as to, to Brazil and kind of what it was about. Plus, again, fucking Robert De Niro. Bobby yeah, Pete. for me, the the one, literally the one enjoyable element of the movie for me. Uh, while you were talking, though, something popped into my mind. What's the Terry Gilliam movie? The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus or something? Oh, yeah, the one that Heath Ledger got halfway through before dying. Again, Terry Gilliam. I, did he kill Heath Ledger? Wow. I mean, is that a coincidence? I don't know. Everything Terry Gilliam turns, turns to shit. Touches, turns to shit. Terry Gilliam might actually be an omen. I mean, is Monty Python still around? It's not. You know? Wait, was there a guy named Monty Python? Uh, it was actually based you off mean of... The, the, the... <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. No. Uh... Oh, no, Monty Python is based off of... It's two different things, but I forget where the name came from. Honestly, somewhere he did spies like us. Did he direct that or write it? No, no. 
No way. Okay, this has to be movies like it. Jupiter, he wasn't involved with Jupiter Ascending, was he? Terry Gilliam? No. Okay, yeah, this is just... Then that has to... Yeah, because that's a, a Wachowski. They're just giving me stuff like like his his things at this point. Uh, Yeah, a lot of his stuff is esca- escapist. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be on record just to say, I don't like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas either. I might be the only person that feels that way. But literally, 12 Monkeys is the only Terry Gilliam movie I enjoy. Until we watch The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Fair, you don't like fair. The Fisher King? No. I mean, it's dark as shit, but I enjoyed The Fisher King. I mean, you never want to just go lay naked in the park and stare at the stars? I mean, I, I live the, across the street from a park. I do that regularly. I didn't like the movie, though. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. Well, yeah, I think that uh, I think that about does it for us. Yeah, well. Hopefully we'll see you for... Can you help me for... with my son? Oh, <laughs> just fuck this movie. All right. Think I've broken a bone. My wrist is limp. What a pathetic creature I am. Bye. God, I'm so. I'm sure when I send you this audio file, my computer will spontaneously combust or something because, you know, Terry Gilliam, I might be done with Terry Gilliam, but he's not done with me kind of thing, but. I will be relieved that this this movie is off the off the uh, the docket.